0: Welcome to Ancient Answers, where we have a discussion talking about today's contemporary issues and reflecting upon the words of the ancients. Today in the special episode, we've got a guest. I'm Gordon Harris. I'm Shane Kingsbury. With Leanne harris raciopo a historian and performer who has an interesting insight on some particular aspects of ancient history. Welcome Leanne.
1: Thank you, thank you for inviting me here.
0: Now, we're doing this recording in the days of plague as we're dealing with COVID-19, so we're all in a remote location. So for those listening in, do understand that the sound quality is basically through a video conferencing system, but we're hoping to have a good conversation. This episode will be a little bit different, a little bit longer than our traditional episodes as we've got a very juicy topic to talk about. I don't know whether the word juicy is the right word, but let's put it this way. It's a topic that is perennially occupied the minds of historians for many years. The difference between, well, I'm gonna let Leanne actually do the introduction. Leanne, what's the
1: differences between what? Uh, Yeah, thanks. Today we're going to explore the differences in ancient Greece between the Athenian culture and the Spartan culture. Obviously, we're gonna look at some differences between how the males operated within those respective cultures, but we're also going to look at how the female roles were defined within those respective cultures. So we're going to look at the Athenian female and the Spartan female along with how it um, how the men operated as well, which usually gets most of the attention in history.
2: Mm-hmm. So one thing I'm, I'm just going to jump in and interject for a second is uh, we talked just before we started recording this that Um, A lot of people have a basic misconception when they think about ancient Greece, they think about it as sort of one unified country, the way we think of countries nowadays. But it's really important to note that that wasn't the case, that over the course of Greece's history, there were 1500 individual city states that operated as sovereign nations. So we're going to compare and contrast Athens and Sparta, who were very, very different, who were at odds with each other quite often. Um, and I'm also very happy that we have Leanne here to talk with us because uh, um, Gordon and I have discussed before when we talk about this podcast that we, we do want to talk about women in history and the roles of women in history, but we didn't want to fall into the trap of being two men who discussed women's roles, so I for yes. one am very grateful that Leanne is joining us today so that we can broach this subject in a proper manner. <laughs> Besides, there are things that we can still learn about. Oh, absolutely, yeah. This, it, I th- I'm think i really excited for this. I think this is gonna be a very interesting discussion. There's a lot to talk about, a lot of neat stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, we're not just gonna dish on how things were awful in the past. We're also going to bring forward things that have remained through the, the ages that we still are very much looking at as a, as a touchstone for our, our lives today. Well, I guess, in looking at the uh, Athenian female, you have to understand Athens. And the Athenians were were snobs. They were extremely ethnocentric about their their city and how great they were. They were very restrictive with marriage. Marriage was only considered valid if it was with another Athenian. So they did not look at marriages with any other city-state as valid. And so, if you had children within that marriage, they were not citizens of Athens. You had to have both parents as Athenians.
0: And was that was that also carried over by other Greek-speaking cities, states in the area, like Corinth and Thebes and stuff like that, or was it just uniquely to the Athenians?
1: I'm not sure if I can say too much on the others. Shane might have a better. Um,
0: well, like was this in? In law, or was it just more of a cultural tradition?
1: Well, it, was, it was in law. It was Pericles who was the one who institutionalized that the only valid marriage was between two Athenians. If you had relations with a non Athenian, it was not a valid marriage and the children did not have citizenship, which was ironic because his lover slash consort was Aspasia, who was born in Miletus, which would be present-day Turkey. And he kind of shot himself in the foot because he realized how much he loved her and how he wanted his children to have legitimacy, but he's the one who put the, the law into act. Mm-hmm. So then he backtracked and he backpedaled. And then sort of said, okay, sorry, big mistake here. Um, And then trying to, you know, jam the law to his uh, benefit. So Pericles Jr. or Pericles the Younger was given citizenship after his father had to wrangle it all over again.
0: But that would have been crucial. Citizenship at the time was crucial because it gave you some legal protection and also the right to have the jury or... You know be brought and forth uh, you know in front of the law for any infraction, you had some legal rights, yes, so yes, I guess it would be a benefit. But now did citizenship also apply to women?
1: Yes, yes. they had citizenship if they were born of two Athenian parents who were freeborn, then that was that they had citizenship. Although I would say that ancient Greece is a great place to be if you're a guy. <laughs> okay? <laughs> it's great if you're a guy because if you're a guy, then you can go outside, you don't have to ask permission, you can go wherever you like, you can congregate in any number without impunity, you can have education, hold public office. Uh, you have the rights of the legal rights under the law that it will protect you if there's a, a charge against you. Property ownership. It was great. It was just great. You can get out there at the Agora and get on Mars Hill and say whatever you like and no one's going to slam you for it. So it was a great life if you were male. Yeah. So if you're an Athenian woman, your education starts when you're about... Um, seven within the home you do not leave the home to be educated if you have an extremely open-minded father he might bring a tutor into your house but that would be a little bit unusual generally the education was put into the mother's hands so mothers would teach daughters about all the things that they needed to know about household management so there would be uh, sewing and spinning and weaving Making honey, pressing oil, supervising the servants, which which is no small thing because household management was like running a small factory, like a small institution, so there was um there was work involved they did have literacy the the Greek girls were I should say the Athenian girls were taught how to read and write to this up to the level of the skills necessary to run their houses. What?
0: I have a quick question. Were these houses multifamiliar, Like they had more than one family? Did they have extended families? It wasn't the typical nuclear family construct that we sort of inherited here in the 21st century.
1: Well, if you're going to compare it to the Spartans, which we will later, you'll say that it is kind of nucleus. But yes, you're going to get mother, father, children, and you know, aging grandparents. So it it could be multi-generational and the servants. Sometimes the servants were married, so they would have their families there, too, but kind of like off in the barracks, if you will. So it was a bit of a compound. It was a bit of a compound situation. But it was nucleus in that there was mother, father and children cohabitating at the same time, the same premises and being raised as such.
0: Are we aware of men's significant involvement in raising Mm -hmm. children or was it? raising children to particularly a certain age, both male and female, basically a woman's domain?
1: Yeah, I would say so. That the Athenian woman or the mother raised the children until the children were about seven. And then at that point, they were divided to go off to school. So the boys would leave home to go to school, which really could be anywhere. It could be like under a tree. It could be under a park. It could be at the tutor's house, it's wherever they des- designated it as a gathering spot. The girls stayed in the house, but seven was when they started their formal education. And then at that point, the male role modeling would take over, the tutor would take over, more of the father's influence would take over from the age of seven. But they were pretty much clinging to their mother's skirts, both sexes before them.
2: So for, for Athenian, males then so because we you already talked about the the girls and their kind of education because it was very domestic right it was very much all about running the household so right compare that to the to this uh, athenian men what was their education like once they went off to school at age seven
1: well when the uh, athenian boys would go off to school at age seven they would uh gather well first of all they're going to bring their slave with them that they were, they would take an escort to school, so they would always have a, um, a companion. So they bring their slave wherever they go, and that meant that they could go out into the public more freely because they're they're escorted uh, like a bodyguard. Okay. But it was a little different because it's not like um, a chaperone who's going to tell you what you can do and what you can't do. It's a bodyguard who is.
0: I guess paid for by.
1: Yeah, paid for by the parents who pretty much have to toe the line and do what the kid wants. Huh. You know? Okay. So, it, 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 yeah, so there's a little bit of a different vibe on what that, the, the role of that escort's going to do. Mm-hmm. So, the, anyway, they, they would go to school, and at school, they would learn about uh, math and history, geography, reading, writing, but which is all great and highly emphasized but of all of those it would be rhetoric and public speaking that would have the greatest influence that's yeah. where you really have to shine that you have to know your words and use your words and so when you get someone like pericles who is sort of the first among equals who is the greatest orator of the of the golden age of greece you gotta give kudos to that man that he could rise up in that culture to be the best of the public speakers in a culture that put such emphasis on public speaking. Mm-hmm. So, uh, those were the things that the um, the boy had to, to learn, and he would be in formal education from about uh, 8 o'clock in the morning till 3 p.m., and then that was the finish of his day. So, they pretty much had the same school day in length as, as we do. Yeah. And, with his uh, advent into education, with his personal slave, as they said, there was great mobility. They, he could go to his friends. He could go visit the temple, go to public squares, public markets, shops, theaters, listen to debates. Very, very mobile in that community. And he would be actually considered a youth until age 30. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and Europeans are kind of that way, too. Like, if you ever want to get, like, a, a rail pass in Europe. You're still considered a student until 30, and I think that's a carryover from that—that that we still view it. That the Europeans still view it that way, whereas we cut you off at uh, you know 18 for high school, 21 mm-hmm. if you're in university. But in both Athenian culture and to a certain extent Spartan culture, you are still considered youth until age 30.
0: Yeah. Did they did they enjoy voting rights for public Uh, elections and stuff like that before the age of 30 or do they have to wait till age 30 to be considered, quote, an adult in order to be able to participate in public events or elections in particular, voting and stuff like that? Hmm. Because it seems to me that they, I know within the military system for a period of time, certainly Athenians, that soldiers that were the age of 30 or younger, I guess 29 years of age and younger, were definitely grouped and treated differently than the, what would be more experienced men who had probably by then already had some military experience in there. Although mm-hmm. so they, were, they, were, they were identified, they had to actually wear a cloth-like identification uh, in battle and in campaigns that Dennis designated them as under the age of 30, because that, that kind of rule of age 30 was a predominant part of the Greek, or certainly of the Athenian, uh, actually, it was also with Spartans as well, uh, sort of uh, age identification.
1: 18 is often, even though they're considered youth, even in ancient Rome, 18 was kind of a special age yeah. where you'd you, your, your toga would change and your, the striping on your toga would change. I don't know how it was in Greece, whether they were quite that way. Do you have a comment on that? Yeah,
2: because we're still talking about the question of uh, voting rights, right? Yeah from the research that I've done. Um, Athenian Athenian male citizens had mandatory military service from ages 18 to 20. It was a two year mandatory military service and they weren't considered full citizens until they had fulfilled that service. Once they had done their military service, then they were eligible to vote in elections. Um, so I don't know. So I actually I'm just to rephrase I don't know if it was once the military service was fulfilled or once they were in the military but uh, it was only full citizenship male Athenians who could vote in any elections so that's the interesting thing when you think about I think a lot of people think of the Athenian democracy and I certainly did for a long time about being a very true democracy where sort of everyone had a voice but realistically it was only about 15% of the population it was only men. It was only, uh, as you said, Leanne, men who were born to Athenian parents. It wasn't any foreigners. It wasn't women. It wasn't any kind of slaves. So, and again, it was those either in or having fulfilled their military service. It was a very, very small window of people who could actually vote and participate in public functions that way. So, uh, when it comes to Greek education, I've I've read a lot about um, the physical aspect of it. I mean, we have the Olympics and uh, ancient festivals like that. So, uh, what what role did physical education have in in Athenian education specifically,
1: uh, for women or for men?
2: Both, actually. I'd be very interested to hear both. <laughs> you can start wherever you'd like, though.
1: <laughs> All right. So. We, I know, have all heard of the Olympics. We all know about the Olympics being an ancient institution. Now, the Olympics were completely male dominated and were absolutely forbidden for women to not only participate in, but to uh, observe. There were no female spectators at at the Olympics. Now, that being said, there's one sort of caveat there, and that is women could involve themselves in the Olympics if they owned the team of horses that were competing in the chariot race. Mm-hmm. So they could own the chariot and the horses, but they did not race them. It had to be a, another, a male charioteer
2: yeah, who,
1: who, who would do that.
2: Because it's it's important to note that the winner of the chariot race was not the driver of the chariot, but the one who owned the horses.
1: Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's That's true. And so that's how the woman could win at the Olympics if she Mm -hmm. owned the 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 team. Yeah. Now, uh, the reason why women were entirely barred from participating in the Olympics is because it was a male-dominated sport, and the Olympics are based on military training that's how the whole thing gets going and they were performed naked the men were utterly naked so the women couldn't observe if a woman showed up at the olympics uh it was a death sentence it was a death penalty so they did not mince around with this there was one athenian woman named uh Kali Patera was a woman whose husband had died many years earlier. She was a young widow with four sons. Uh, Three sons, sorry, three sons. And she raised them to be great Olympians. And she snuck into the Olympics disguised as a male. She she, uh, cloaked herself, she snuck in because she really wanted to see her youngest son in the boxing match. And when her son's name was called as the winner, she totally forgot herself and started to cheer and either the cloak fell off or her leg was exposed because she was wearing um, her female garb. Anyway, the cat was out of the bag and she was hauled before the Senate and there there was a a charge leveled against her, which was a death penalty charge. But they, they kind of eased off on her because she was the mother of three Olympians and she herself was a female athlete, so they let it go. But that was the only time in recorded history that a, a woman ever attended the Olympics. Wow. Now that being said, what we have to remember is that the Athenian women were given their own Olympics. They had a female Olympics mm-hmm. and they were all, they were only open to virgin girls, so non-married women could participate. And they were largely track, like foot racing. And for those who won in the foot race, they were given, uh, you know, the accolades and a statue in their honor, and that was kind of a big deal. They they ran with a short tunic that went up to the knees, which was quite a shock in Athenian society because all respectable women of uh, free-born Athenians, families had to have their their uh, tunics or their stolas down to their ankles you have to cover your ankles only slaves and prostitutes expose their ankles so you have to cover the ankles so when the women the Athenian women participated in these track meets and wore the short tunic to the knee with the right breast exposed (laughs) uh, that was you know that was a big deal that's but cool. that was a female only event, and then yeah. once you married you're never doing that either
2: so we so you said that women couldn't even spectate at the Olympic festivals and the games that the men competed at which uh, I didn't actually know for a very long time I only learned that relatively recently um, so I'm I'm assuming then that men were not allowed to spectate at the female games is that correct? Do you know
1: our understanding is that it was yeah female only the okay. girls the girls guys the guys that makes sense <laughs> yeah
2: all right yeah. which is
1: quite different than the spartans <laughs> which yes. get to. yeah
2: yeah so be- before we do move on to the spartans the um the education in general the, the physical education aspect of athenian society um again we will talk about the spartans so the physical education wasn't as heavy and prevalent as it was in spartan society but it was still very very prevalent i mean Uh, there were still gymnasiums that popped up to educate and train uh, Athenian men, and they still participated in foot races and boxing and discus and javelin and, and all kinds of events. Um, Although one, one thing I found interesting while doing some research was that it seemed that the Spartan emphasis on physical education was about being the perfect soldier. Whereas the Athenian emphasis was a lot more to do with physical beauty. And it was all about, being really good looking and having a fit body but you know basically here's the statues that we're carving out and sculpting that's what we're aiming for anything else is a bonus that would be yes. very, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah because their job was to emulate the gods right yeah, there you go okay
2: perfect that makes sense yeah. then. and yeah,
1: and the other oh
0: sorry go ahead just, say, just an interesting observation popped in my head and thinking of the difference between lifestyles from then in the ancient days and today when you consider how much idle time or sorry how idle time was used by both men women and children uh like school as you mentioned would just be for the boys in in and athens and they would be then occupied during the day and of course the young girls would be busy learning all the the skills of running a house or being part of a of a house and stuff like that but you think of the difference today where there's there's no online gaming, there's no television, there's none of these other things that do consume time. They would have had to fill their time in with activities so that a boredom factor wasn't in there because they certainly were aware of the fact that idle youth, they, they had a kind of a fear of idle youth because that would lead to all sorts of future problems. Uh, is keeping, keeping Athenian children and young adults busy and occupied. And not hanging around the streets looking for trouble.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Funny enough, they they have found an ancient record of a um, of a mother despairing at the rebelliousness of the youth. And you know, what will the next generation bring? You know, these rebellious, belligerent youth. The thing too is, um, for the Athenian, they believed in you know balance to all things. That a, a well-rounded individual was not just physically a great specimen, but had to be uh, mentally challenged. And so we know that the Athenians brought around some of our, our our great philosophies, our great inventions, and we're, we're still using so many of their inventions that they created during this golden age. When I say the golden age, you know, around like sort of 400 to 500 BC, and you would you would see that with like the Archimedes screw you know as a way to bring water from one low level to a higher level you're gonna see that at every uh, fun park where there's a water slide or where there's some kind of a log flume where you got to bring water up and then shoot it down you're going to see it with flamethrowers and puppets and the um the lighthouses and fire extinguishers, uh sirens, uh ships anchors, the the catapult and the the pulley, um soap and showers and um oh you you could just go on about all the things that they, they gave us.
0: Yeah. So Yeah, not only did they create a lot of those things but because there were widespread traders trading all across the Mediterranean and even a little bit beyond they were bringing back ideas that other people had come up with and brought together that is I think uniquely strong aspect of Athens mindset was they weren't afraid to to adopt other people's good inventions and ideas mm-hmm. yeah and of course if we switch to, to shortly we'll be switching to talk about their neighbor Sparta that's the complete opposite right there. That's an enormously great divide between two cultures, one who saw the world as a place to learn, even if it's for their own benefit, and then another culture that literally thought the rest of the world was too stupid to ever even listen to. (laughs) That's dramatic, but...
1: Yeah, well, we we don't have... Sorry, yeah, we we don't have much that remains of Sparta today. Like, really, almost nothing. (laughs) Whereas with Athens, um, I mean, I I could rattle off a list of inventions that we are still actively using today. You just did. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's more. <laughs> <No, laughs> I just going by the top can, of my head, but we could do a whole
2: episode just on that stuff. Like it's astonishing what we still have.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um. I, if I dig around in my notes here, I I have a whole list of of things that um, pontoon bridges. Oh. The birthday Rocky. cake, you know, we put candles in, we sing a song, we blow out the candles. I mean, this is, yeah. what, this is what ancient Athens has given us still. We're still doing that one. Uh, Pulling pull a wishbone. Oh, let's pull the wishbone and make a wish. Well, that's what they gave us. So, yeah. 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 And also um, well,
2: our you know music, one of the...
1: our, our, our sharp and flat notes, choral um, music, you know, just comedies and tragedies, you know, something that is actually a play versus just a bunch of people singing a song in a in a chorus. Yeah, yeah. So you
2: there's the actual.
0: Go ahead. Sorry, Gord. Go ahead. The the thing about um, the Athenians, and you have to also give them credit, and to other much such-minded Greek peoples in other other cities, was they they were curious. You can tell by the writings of the philosophers and writings of stuff that they were actively engaged in the mental exercise of exploring the world, trying to learn how things work. I mean, they were astonished by the natural phenomena of weather and the stars and stuff and were always curious. And in fact, I think one of the sort of subtly great things about the particular, those particular Greek cultures, because I'm going to use a plural here, there's more than one, is they were they were willing and interested in learning about the world on their own they didn't necessarily rely only on someone else telling the story but they believed in thinking logically doing experiments i mean all these rudiments that are part of our scientific world today came primarily from the athenian greeks and the related communities that's the great that's the great legacy because it gave us an engine of inquiry.
2: When it comes to Athens versus Sparta, there is far too much to cover in one single short episode. So please join us next week for part two, where myself, Gordon, and our special guest Leanne continue to compare and contrast Athenian and Spartan society. On behalf of Gordon Harris and myself, I'd like to say thank you for listening to Ancient Answers. You can find us on Facebook and Spotify. Please like, share, and follow our podcast to hear more.